0: Investment products are not FDIC-insured, not a bank guarantee, and may lose value. Please read other important information, which can be found on the link at the end of the podcast episode.
1: Hello, I'm Michael Sembalist, and this is Eye on the Market. Today, we'll be talking about our 2018 annual energy paper. And joining me is Matt LeBlanc, who is the CIO of J.P. Morgan Asset Management's Infrastructure Investments Group. Matt has nearly a quarter century of power, utility, and energy finance and private equity experience, so he'll provide some interesting insights on today's topic. So he and I will get into more details. For background, we write an energy paper like this once a year. It is overseen by our technical advisor, Vaclav Smil, who is one of the world's preeminent energy experts. I've actually been to see him a couple of times in Manitoba, where I make a pilgrimage to see him, and he is Bill Gates' favorite author at least according to Vaclav. Anyway, today we're gonna be going through our 2018 energy paper, which is entitled Pascal's Wager. Thanks for joining me, Matt. Thanks very much, Mike. I look forward to the conversation. All right. Pascal's Wager, I'd like to get into that a little bit with you. Pascal obviously was the French logician, and Pascal's Wager is about the logic of believing in God, because if you believe in him and he exists, you get an internal payoff. If you don't believe in him and he exists, you have eternal damnation. And if you believe in him and he doesn't exist, you don't lose very much. And as I've been watching this whole renewable energy, climate change discussion unfold over the last few years, it kind of strikes me that we're not going to really know in our lifetimes the true impact of man-made gas, greenhouse gas emissions on temperatures and sea levels. But according to Pascal's wager, we should probably... Believe and prepare anyway, because if we don't, the cost of being wrong is somewhat infinite. And if we make preparations and it turns out that some of those theories aren't true, much less is lost. And so that was the logic behind this year's paper in terms of the overarching theme. I want to get into a little bit the most important message and the executive summary of the paper. And you and I had talked about this. Most people don't really appreciate the limited scope that electricity actually has in the overall energy infrastructure, which is kind of amazing, but electricity itself only represents about 17% of all energy that's consumed around the world. And right now, the grid is around 25% renewable. But even if that number went to 50% from 25%, you're only talking about 17% of the overall energy consumption. So the impact, I don't want to call it negligible, but when you look through the charts and some of the numbers, the carbon emission and sea level rise benefits from decarbonizing the grid are, I guess the word is modest, I suppose I would use. What did you take away from looking through some of the stuff we put together?
2: Absolutely agree, Mike. I shared with you, it was terrifying when you share all the statistics in one place to look at the minimal effect of renewables policy, the need for flood mitigation is a mitigating strategy for broader climate change, and then highlight some of the other things that we have in place that we haven't availed ourselves over time, and the fact it's going to take a massive effort. There's no silver bullet. You, know, you have to do a little bit of everything, right. and why wouldn't you start yesterday?
1: And when you go back to some of the papers that were first written about these topics 20 years ago at Princeton, they were all pie charts, where ultimately you needed to do seven or eight things simultaneously in order to constrain global temperature increases to two degrees centigrade. Just to walk through the numbers a little bit, using rough numbers, electricity is about 20% of global energy consumption. And right now, about 25% of that is renewable. Even of that 25%, the vast majority is hydropower. I like to go to college campuses and ask groups of college-age students, What percentage of global electricity generation do they think comes from solar power? And you're going to get answers like 10 percent and 15 percent and 20 percent. The answer is 1 percent. Wind is 4. And as I mentioned, hydro is around 16. The growth rates of wind and solar penetration are very rapid. Just a a little over a decade ago, wind and solar was only half a percent. And now it's 5 percent. So it's grown tenfold in about 10 years. That's the easier part of the penetration cycle when you're starting with very low numbers. And as I mentioned, something like 80 to 85% of all of the primary energy consumed around the world is still based on fossil fuels. And a lot of that has to do with transportation and industry. And those are a couple of topics that we get into a little more detail on. Those sectors are not very decarbonized at all.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think when you talk about this being an energy paper, it really sells the effort short. I think you're looking at a more comprehensive assessment of a sustainable economy. And when you focus on the kinds of things that need to change in that industry or transportation, it's not just on the supply side, it's also on the demand side. Yeah, And the customer impact and the shift in customer preferences is going to be a really important part of that shift in those two massive components of not just the, the organized economies, but the emerging and developing economies, which will be larger and larger consumers of those fossil fuels as they look to develop the same quality of life that we find in the North in organized economies.
1: So before we get into the electric vehicle penetration question, let's spend a minute on industry, right? Because the three general uses of energy are, you know, the industrial sector, the transportation sector, and then combining residences and commercial buildings. And- the largest user of energy of the three is the industrial sector. And as we walk through here, the industrial sector is heavily reliant on fossil fuels for two reasons. One is they use fossil fuels as raw materials. And secondly, fossil fuels are used to create sustained very high temperatures for heat for purposes of smelting and other kind of chemical and metals related production processes. And this is – the industrial sector is basically where the chemicals, iron, steel, paper, and food come from. And when you think about fossil fuels as a raw material and fossil fuels for process heat, neither one of those are good candidates for replacing it with electricity that's powered by wind and solar power. And I think that's one of the biggest things that energy experts are starting to try to think about is how do you decarbonize – a sector that is using a lot of fossil fuels for things that electricity is not good at.
2: Right. And I think it's important to note, people often point to electric vehicles or the potential for fleet vehicles on the electric side to solve the transportation equation. But the level of investment in infrastructure to go beyond local usage to long-haul usage where we rely upon trucks, in particular huge consumers on the transportation side, also changed. Some other people look to technology and say, hey, video conferencing increases is going to help reduce the demand for air travel. We don't think so in our business. There's a lot of face to face dialogue, and that's not going to change. And then you're left with the industry, which is the largest consumer of fossil fuels. What's going to replace the components of the feedstocks necessary for plastics, for example? Yeah. You know, The high heat and processes for resource conversion, physical conversion of raw materials into steel and the demand for that. Paper products, you know, supposed to be going the way of the dodo, still front and center. I look around the room here today, and I still haven't gone entirely green. I've got a bunch of printouts in front of me. And so that's hard to overcome. I've heard some people point to a hydrogen-based economy, easier to store, can be used in some of the simple machines like combustion engines today. But What's the delivery infrastructure? The extraction, yeah. delivery, storage needs to be recreated.
1: The two big obstacles in terms of the hydrogen economy have been the efficiency of the electrolysis process. When I started looking at the hydrogen economy 10 years ago, it was only 40% efficient. In other words, you know, compared to something like pumped storage as an energy storage mechanism, you were losing maybe 15% of the power. In electrolysis, you were losing 60 That's getting a little better But now you have the other question of imagine the same global distribution network that's been built over the last 100 years for petroleum products and then more recently over the last 40 years for natural gas products. That would all have to be replicated for hydrogen products. You can't simply piggyback off the existing infrastructure to do these kinds of things. So that's going to be very complicated and very expensive. And in a few minutes when we talk about one of the topics in the paper on hydrogen, we'll get into more detail on that. But as it relates to what you talked about in terms of demand for paper and metals and fuels, one of my favorite energy topics that we wrote about was last year, we did a one pager on college campuses that are now defining themselves as carbon neutral. And we listed all of the things that are not included in those assessments of carbon neutrality, namely, the way the students get to campus, the food they eat when they're there, the clothes they wear when they're there, the buildings that they live in, the buildings that they study in, the books that they read, et cetera, et cetera. So the kind of selective computation of campus neutrality really only relates to the consumption of energy when they're studying in libraries as it relates to the HVAC systems.
2: Absolutely right. I mean, I think, you know, to defend the college students, and I'm on the advisory board for the Center for Business and Environment at Yale, I hear a lot of the same arguments that you hear, Mike, and when I'm talking to the students. And it's very refreshing to hear it, but they've taken a page out of their economics professors' playbooks when they assume away all frictions or the hard <laughs> stuff and just focus on what's easy and tangible. And by the way, it's a good place to start. It is.
1: It's a good but place it's not to start. Get us all the way there. My concern is that people say, well, you know, look, if a college campus can achieve carbon neutrality, why can't the rest of us? And the reality is that all of the living conditions are assumed as pre existing, as well as the delivery of food and energy in terms of getting people around. And it can be misleading to say, well, you know, college campuses have found a way to become carbon neutral and the rest of us can't, and it's just a question of political will. That's why it's important that balance sheet accountings of carbon neutrality have to be done on a fully loaded basis so that people get the right idea about what's achievable and what's not achievable. In this year's paper, we've got five topics. We start with a thorough assessment of electric vehicles. And whether or not by 2030, for example, there's going to be either a 2% or a 20% solution. We talk about the transmission bottleneck in the US related to high voltage direct current lines and how China has made great strides here, but for a variety of legal and regulatory reasons, the US is still stuck in neutral on that. And then we talk about the Jacobson paper, which is a fascinating topic in and of itself, Mark Jacobson from Stanford wrote a paper a few years ago arguing that the entire U.S. electricity grid could be powered by wind, solar, and hydroelectric power by 2050 at low cost and with reasonably little difficulty in achieving it. A team of 25 researchers from all over the best universities and think tanks in the country have utterly pulverized and dismantled this paper, and we kind of walked through all the rationale there. and. We end with a couple of topics that pull it together by saying there's a lot of progress being made in grid decarbonization, but if the decarbonization benefit of that is in fact limited, we have to start thinking more seriously about risks to sea levels by the middle of the century and what kind of flood remediation infrastructure would be needed to protect the world's largest and most heavily inhabited cities. And then we finish up with something I want to talk about a little later, which is on the U.S. Electoral College and food and energy security and a couple of comments about the last presidential election. But the sea level rise in some ways is the centerpiece of this year's paper because what it talks about is the cost and the mechanics of what if decarbonization efforts fail. We have a lot of assets globally and a lot of people globally living in the floodplains. And the good news, I think, because you know, when you and I talked a couple of weeks ago, you said this was depressing. What I thought was not so depressing was to find out that with some modest level of investment covering, let's say, 10% of the global shoreline, you could protect 80% or 90% of the global population and the value of the assets. And so to me, that's the interesting public policy question of the next 20 years, not How can we throw more subsidies at wind and solar power? They've already got them. They've got preference on the grid. There are solar subsidies and wind subsidies. Now we've got to start thinking about subsidies for the kind of infrastructure that'll protect the assets we have in place. And as somebody that invests in and thinks about infrastructure, what was your take on that section?
2: I said it was depressing in the context of my worry that it would take a number of other natural disasters, having lived through Superstorm Sandy here in Brooklyn and see its effects on the areas and the low-lying areas even a few neighborhoods away, I was worried that we wouldn't act quickly enough. And it would take a couple more of these things before people motivated. it. And recognizing this is a massive capital program over an extended period of time. I think you start with lower levels of investment to show that it works, then you build support. But the time is now to catalyze voters and politicians alike to start spending money i think one of the challenges is this and maybe it's an opportunity is a lot of times when we talk about infrastructure in the context of our investment model you talk about private public partnerships this is too large a scale to put in that category Those typically require a revenue model of some kind. You won't have that here. It's hard to put a price on the protection that you're talking about, protecting populations, providing security of where people live,
1: how they get to work, how they – But What's amazing, though, even though it's hard to put a revenue model on it, there's enormous revenue windfall implied for the businesses and individuals that live near these flood protection zones that they have – in different parts of Europe and Asia, right? In other words, and I think the most- Netherlands in particular. And in other words, I think I like of all the different financing options is essentially instead of a toll-based revenue approach, some basic simple computations of if you benefit financially from the construction of this sea barrier, there's going to be a property tax levy on that area to help finance the construction of the thing.
2: And absolutely, the insurance market should be a major participant in this, whether it's broadly publicly socialized or more specifically around the policies to protect those various assets and population centers you're talking about. I mean, you think about the loss aversion or the loss avoided, I should say, with regard to those areas and what we all suffered here in New York and areas that are still being rebuilt many years later. I think it's something that we should be able to mobilize folks around. So it doesn't have to all come from publics. And I think, you know, there is a precedent for large-scale infrastructure build going back to the 50s around the road system here wasn't a revenue model, but people saw the benefit of it and people assessed the cost benefits by states and those participants, as well as looking at the utility complex here in the U.S. There was an ability to attract a lot of capital with a known return of and on that capital, not very high, regulatory review, good RFP process, transparency in construction and procurement. You know, why can't you apply that here today? And you can attract a lot of capital. There are examples of large-scale infrastructure projects in Europe, the Netherlands we mentioned earlier, in Asia you mentioned, but also around smaller-scale, large-scale sewage projects in London times Tideway, which attract a very low-cost capital when they knew that the government was going to protect against some of the risks of cost overruns, and timing delays. Yeah.
1: We have a fascinating little schematics in that section that look at the different kind of sea gates and sea barriers and how they work and how they're built. And some of the studies that we cite, the benefits of building infrastructure have been anywhere from 2 to 1 to 100 to 1. And when you look back at some of the hurricanes we've had over the last 20 years, it's not hard to imagine that some preemptive infrastructure, particularly in New Orleans, would have been a fraction of the ultimate realized cost of fixing everything. And so, again, I think I'm hopeful that the dialogue around what to do about emissions and sea levels and carbon can shift towards flood remediation and mitigation infrastructure without giving up on some of the other goals related to decarbonization. I think we need to be realistic about what's achievable. And that's why I felt before getting into the infrastructure paper, I wanted to share this rebuttal that came from all those researchers and think tanks that thoroughly dismantled Jacobson's paper. Because as long as you believe, as a citizen, that you can achieve full decarbonization through wind, solar, and hydro, why support flood infrastructure if it's that easy to unplug all the coal, natural gas, and petroleum Why should I support my taxes being used to build flood mitigation infrastructure, right? And that's where the Jacobson piece arguably does a disservice by unrealistically portraying a pathway for decarbonization that really doesn't exist. And the people that dismantled his paper, some of them came from the same university he teaches at and some of the best universities in the state of California, most of whom are huge renewable energy proponents. And bringing a dose of reality to this thing is a very healthy part of the process. There's a little box we have in this section that's fascinating. It's the piece on the Grand Coulee Dam. And I'm pretty sure you saw this one because some of the statistics are incredible. Implied in the Jacobson paper is a massive build-out of hydroelectric power, but not through new plants, new hydro plants, but by expanding the capacity of existing plants. And implied in Jacobson's paper for the Grand Coulee Dam in Washington is that it would have a peak power rating that's more than all of the hydropower that exists in the U.S. today and around five times bigger than the largest hydro plant that's ever been built in the world, which is the Three Gorges Dam. And that the flow rate that would have to go through this Grand Coulee Dam is five times bigger than the largest flow rate that was ever recorded in history on that river. And so we cite these statistics because sometimes with a little bit of work, it's not that hard to illustrate that some of what's being argued here by futurists and some of these pop culture green tech media think tankers is implausible bordering on impossible. And that's why we felt it was so important to walk through that section because these guys spent a lot of time and effort for good reasons, I think, dismantling some of these other more fanciful forecasts.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think it's important to be realistic about this. And even in the stage of alternative facts, this goes well beyond even those expectations. I think when we talk about renewables in our portfolio and talk to investors, a lot of the conversation is when will renewables be economic without subsidies, without additional support. And what we find is in many cases, they are but the industry still wants to rely upon those. Until the industry unshackles themselves, you're not having a true conversation about where they fit into it. And the reality is, I think, the most forward-looking renewable power companies are taking the renewable out of their title and focusing on being power companies. Right. And when they do that, then they're part of the solution. They're not the solution. Right. Going right. back to the lack of silver billet comment I made earlier, we need to do a little bit of anything. And so it's interesting to see the academic community pile on in this regard with the best intentions, that we get the right dialogue to the people who are going to ultimately be making decisions about their taxes, which are the taxpayers in one form or another.
1: Look, the good news is that wind and solar are now displacing coal, almost irrespective of any policy support, right? Because the underlying dynamics and economics are now favorable enough for wind and solar that coal is gradually fading. I think what would surprise most people to learn, though is that over the next 20 years, it's still going to be natural gas that meets the largest amount of incremental new demand, particularly as it relates to electric vehicles on the grid, rather than wind and solar power, per se. And that's why it's so important that the EPA establish some clear, acceptable, scientifically demonstratable safe rules around hydraulic fracturing, which is a topic that we wrote about last year.
2: One comment that I think you touch upon in the paper and you've covered before is the need for large-scale energy storage facilities. And that's ultimately something that the folks who addressed the Jacobson paper highlighted. The ability to do this in the absence of fossil fuel, whether it's peaking natural gas plants or combined cycle plants that are available to run when the sun's not shining, the wind's not blowing, people still demand that reliability and security of electricity supply.
1: And what Jacobson did with sleight of hand a little bit was he assumed both – a gargantuan storage system using underground boreholes to store (laughs) heat, which is for the most part unproven and uncosted. And secondly, and you'll appreciate this, he assumed almost completely flexible load shifting in the industrial sector. In other words, the industrial sector would be just as happy consuming electricity whenever it happens to be available rather than when they need it. And we know that that's not the case.
2: You know, Mike, when we first met a little over five years ago, we were talking about renewables and their place in the economy, and we're in the direction this was all going. And I talked about a big project I've been involved with in California, where the cost of the actual wind generation was about a third of the cost of delivering the service to the population centers down and around LA County, and that the fact that the transmission lines, $6 billion cost, was being socialized across the entire population of California. California leading... This effort through broad subsidy and, in contrast, Texas leading through a more market-based approach to wind and solar direction and costing around the competitive energy renewable zones and transmission.
1: Yeah. Look, the transmission issue can't be overstated in terms of its importance. And uh, just to make a couple of quick comments – First, whether it's Lazard or the Energy Information Agency or all the stuff you read on blogs, when you read about levelized costs of energy, they don't include transmission. And that's a big deal because wind and solar centers are generally really far from urban population centers and the other energy forms, whether typically it's nuclear or gas or coal, are not. And so the incremental transmissions costs related to wind and solar... Are pretty enormous. At some point soon, states like Iowa may be fully self sufficient on wind for 80% or so of total electricity consumption. But if you take the entire wind corridor of the United States, it only accounts for 6% of US electricity consumption. So, in order for wind power to make a dent, we're going to have to make a bigger dent in transmission. And one of the things we talk about are all the legal, environmental and financial challenges facing the construction of high voltage direct current lines in the United States in contrast to a place like China where eminent domain just allows them to blast right through whatever objections exist. In last year's paper we wrote about this clean line project to get wind energy from the Texas Panhandle to Tennessee. First project I think in 10 to 15 years in terms of large scale transmission, now it looks like it's on hold again. So Whenever people talk about renewable energy and wind and solar, the discussion's incomplete without associated discussions on transmission.
2: Yeah, absolutely agree.
1: There are two things in here I want to touch on quickly before we close. First is we put a lot of work into trying to understand the break-even payback period for the Tesla semi-truck because that's going to tell us a lot about the speed of electric vehicle penetration. I think there's no question that – There'll be some substantial savings on electricity versus diesel fuel. The question, though, is how long will it take in years before you earn back the incremental upfront cost associated with this electric truck and the cost of having to replace the electric battery? You know, This is another example of where Tesla and some of the companies that cover it had a two-year estimate for a payback period, and ours was closer to five to six, and we'll have to see. But I think- this is another example of where the more you look at something and the more analysis you apply to it, sometimes you get results that are not as optimistic as sometimes you see in the press.
2: Absolutely. I mean, it's just the way of the world. Things take longer and they typically cost more than initial optimistic projections. We need those optimists out there challenging us to think differently. At the same time, we need to be realistic about how quickly they can bring solutions to the fore. Yeah, I mean, I think the trucking piece of the equation is huge. It Whether is a big Tesla piece of the equation. Or BYD or other people that are looking to solve it, but it still takes someone saying, "I'm willing to rely upon these long haul providers of service," particularly as you know our economy here in the U.S. requires access to the hinterland, and it has limitations on the rail and port system, yeah. and so you're relying on trucks to get the last mile and get Amazon delivered, you know, whenever you want, 24-7, even same day. Drones aren't going to be the answer.
1: (laughs) No. Let me ask you a question. What did you think of our last section on the Electoral College? Did you enjoy reading that?
2: I really loved it. I think it brought home and made people think about this in a totally different context. You know, it's something that we think about in infrastructure in that there are certain population centers that are relatively wealthy and have an ability to use local taxing authority to promote certain programs that benefit their local citizens. And that's a pretty easy thing to get support to. But you're overlooking the fact that access to the other things you rely upon, food, energy, other resources, comes from other parts of the country that you're ultimately dependent on. So you can't be independent of the state in a federalist democracy, and you can't change the system when it doesn't suit your immediate agenda, despite what your political leanings may be.
1: Yeah, I don't want to completely spoil the surprise, but what we do in the last section is we look at the importance of food and energy to the cities of the United States. We look at where that food and energy comes from, how much is domestic, how much is imported, and we reimagine what the electoral college state-by-state allocations of electors would look like if the electoral college was based on population and on what states produce the food and energy that makes these major urban centers thrive. And I'll leave you with this. It looks a lot different than the electoral college that we have today. Matt, thank you very much. Obviously, for everybody who is listening to this podcast, this is one of our first podcasts, and we hope to do more of them. And we'd like to hear your feedback. If you want to follow along with what we've been actually talking about, we're talking about Pascal's Wager, which is our 2000. an 18 Eye on the Market energy paper. Thank you very much for listening.
0: Michael Semblist's Eye on the Market offers a unique perspective on the economy, current events, markets, and investment portfolios, and is a production of J.P. Morgan Asset and Wealth Management. Michael Semblist is the chairman of Market and Investment Strategy for J.P. Morgan Asset Management and is one of our most renowned and provocative speakers. For more information, please subscribe to the Eye on the Market by contacting your J.P. Morgan representative. If you'd like to hear more, please explore episodes on iTunes or on our website. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is a communication on behalf of J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, a member of FINRA and SIPC. Views may not be suitable for all investors and are not intended as personal investment advice or as a solicitation or recommendation. Outlooks and past performance are never guarantees of future results. This is not investment research. Please read other important information, which can be found at www.jpmorgan.com slash disclaimer EOTM.